If you would, if you would turn in, turn to Genesis, Genesis chapter one. <clears throat> Just have that open. We don't have a specific scripture reading this morning because if we did that, we'd be here for a long time because we're going to walk through the whole book of Genesis, more of a, um, an introductory overview of it. And I want to encourage you before I get going, um, and on the back table back there are these journals, these Genesis uh, journals that has the text in it like we had for the Luke series, and you can take notes on this side. So um, they're for free, just grab one and, um, and take it home and, and use this throughout the week. Um, and you can bring it to church as well if you want. But uh, um, how, how is it that you react to bad news? How do you respond to, to bad news? There's plenty of bad news going around, right? Maybe bad news in your own life. It's a bad diagnosis, perhaps, or seeing the most recent mass shooting or some injustice taking place, or seeing how our society loves increasingly that which God calls evil. Maybe it's witnessing tens of thousands of people dying a you know, horrific death in Turkey, or Syria, or Ukraine. Thousands upon thousands and thousands. Maybe it's the seemingly growing friction between much of the West with a few other powerful countries around the world. Maybe you've been very much wronged or hurt by somebody uh, you love, somebody who said that they loved you, but you've been hurt by them. Maybe it's a sin pattern in your life that's causing the bad news. How is it you respond to bad news? Now, let me first tell you that as we enter into this new sermon series, the book of Genesis is going to help us know how God intends for us, his people, to respond to the bad news of life. Over the next year, we're going to be going through Genesis in three different sections. Uh, one section would be Genesis 1 through 11. The next section, and speaking about firm foundations in this section. Uh, this sermon itself is called Firm Foundations, and that'll cover the whole series. But in Genesis 1 through 11, there are significant things that take place that are really are firm foundations for our faith. The second section will have us considering chapters 12 through 25 and consider the covenant-making God and, and who He is and who we are and what that means that He makes covenants like that. And, and then the third part, which will be from chapter 25 through to the end of the book, uh, in chapter 50, we'll be growing to know our covenant-keeping God, because God is not just a God who makes promises and doesn't keep them. He is a God who makes promises, covenants, and keeps them. He keeps them, and he keeps them through, as we'll see today, through all sorts of nonsense that we participate in. Today, as we enter into this series, I want to begin again by looking at the whole message of Genesis. So when people think of Genesis, they think primarily of a few things, like creation evolution. They ask about the age of the earth, or they think about stories like Noah. And, you know, we heard them in Sunday school or in some class in homeschooling or whatever. You know, Noah and Abraham and Isaac, uh, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, and his brothers. And each story uh, is generally very enjoyable to read and gen generally enjoyable to listen to. They're, they're filled with all sorts of action, really. Um, sometimes a bit confusing to understand why certain things are being done because we're generally unfamiliar uh, with ancient Near East kind of things, and we're coming at it from a you know Western mindset, an American mindset, and uh, and so it's a little confusing sometimes. And but you, you know the statement you you 
can't see the forest because of the trees. That statement, as we read Genesis, it's going to be easy to get sidetracked uh, into certain issues and potentially begin moralizing ourselves to death through the storyline. Miss the enormous forest of God's intention for this book. So how, how is it that we might not miss the forest of God's intention for this very important book as we look at the specific and very large looming trees that are in the narrative? We do so by asking two questions. This would be something that we want to continue asking throughout the whole series. Why did the author of Genesis, which most believe is Moses, almost in its entirety, not, not quite, but, but typically Moses, people would say, wrote this book. Why did he write this book? Second, what change did he envision, and God speaking through Moses, what change did the, he want in the audience? And when we continue to ask those two questions, uh, as we go through the book today and as we go through the book over the next year, we are going to grow in understanding how we are meant to apply these truths to our lives today. And not just make them into matters of debate, but into how must we respond to this word. All writing has an intended response. Everything that is written has an intended response. A book has a primary thesis that's meant to be seen as one reads the book. If it does not have a primary thesis, the book is worthless. And it's like, pick, pick apart, but there's one overarching theme that a good book has. An Instagram ad, as almost worthless as those are, they'd never, nevertheless communicate in such a way to a specific audience to buy a specific product for a specific reason. You know, you talk about something in the house and what shows up on your Instagram ad. Uh, organic mattresses uh, all of a sudden shows up on your Instagram ad because you might have mentioned something about an organic mattress, uh, that there would be an organic mattress is an interesting thing in itself. But anyway, the, the re- there's, those, there's those realities, right? Um, one pastor stated this, if I write my wife a love letter, I have a specific purpose for that letter. I want her to feel my love and not just read it and say, well, that's helpful information and throw it in the trash. It's the same for books of the Bible. God intends to communicate something in this book of Genesis and to draw out a response from us. Not just to listen and say, wow, that's an interesting story. What is it meant to do to us? Consider music and movies just for a moment. And I was going to play, uh, I should just, I should play it. I, I was tempted to do this and I'm giving into it. Um, let me just play it real quick. See if it pops up. Can I have this? What is it? Star Wars, right? So it's it's Star Wars, and so you hear that song, and what do you hear? You hear Luke, you see Luke Skywalker, you see Han Solo and Princess Leia and, and Darth Vader, and you see all that stuff, you see the big ships, and you have these pictures in your head, right? You hear the song, there's that song that kind of goes throughout all, all the Star Wars movies, and there's these pictures that come to your mind. There's the grandeur of the story, the difficulties experienced, and the victories realized. And it's true in Genesis as well. There's a kind of soundtrack in Genesis that's meant to communicate a story, an 
not, not just a bunch of stories that are interesting in Israel's history, but one overarching story. It actually is the beginning of the whole story of this whole book. That's how important Genesis is. If you don't get Genesis and what Genesis is speaking of, how we're to respond, then this book is just a bunch of stories, all kind of for our moral good. But there's something bigger, something much more vast, something enormous that we must get to. It's like, it's like seeing Genesis through this soundtrack. It's kind of like putting on a pair of glasses that brings the various stories and their details into proper focus. And to do this, we need to first consider the original context. Again, most, including Jesus, are agreed that Moses essentially wrote the entirety of Genesis for Israel, and not just Genesis, but the entire first five books, and for the purpose that all kind of go together, not kind of, they go together, uh, the Pentateuch. The, the authorship, though, is not the primary question that I want to ask, nor is it the primary question we need to ask. Rather, the primary questions are more precisely, to whom was it written, when was it written, where was it written, and why was it written? Where was Israel when they received this book? What were their needs when they heard the reading of this book? To see this, to know this, to, to understand this will give us the proper perspective as we enter into this most amazing book. Well, most, most agree that the original audience of Genesis was the nation of Israel who was soon to enter the land of Canaan, the promised land. If you remember some of that history, you'll recall, you'll recall that they dealt with a lot of fear and a, a lack of faith as they tried to rest in God, believe in God. But some or most of that fear and unbelief or misplaced faith came in the face of significant, sizable opposition in the promised land. And you can hear it in their voices in Deuteronomy 1, verse 28. They say, where, 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 uh, where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The, the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. They're freaking out. They're scared, most of them. But over and above that visual threat stood the threat of the spiritual life, the spiritual realities of, that, of the other nations, the other gods. There were, there were other ancient Near East stories that spoke very similarly of foundational things of creation and the multiplication of humans on the earth. But, but then those stories, which are in very, very interestingly similar in, in many areas, um, there's significant difference as they speak about God or the gods. They spoke of the anger of the gods against them. They spoke of humanity being slaves of angry and vengeful gods without any sense of sin or holiness or Redemption, and, and you might imagine that that instilled a lot of fear as it had the nations around them that believed those stories. And so here Israel stands uh, among the nations, ready to enter in, having had all, all the redemptive works of God uh, happening to them in the past and protecting them. There's, there's been significant unbelief all the way along, and they get to this place, and they're still fearful. They're still fearful. They don't know what to do. They don't know who to trust. They they stand there on the edge of the promised land. They've wandered around the desert for 40 years. 40. Like, feel it. We struggle, we struggle for two days, a month, two months, a year, five years, ten years. 40. 
years in the desert, wandering around. These, these men and women, boys and girls, they knew nothing different in that entire generation but this wandering and this fear of just wanting to go, not wanting to go, not wanting to believe, not sure they could believe. God had powerfully, lovingly delivered them from Egypt. He had reminded them over and over again. He led them miraculously through the Red Sea. He provided the miracle of manna. He gave the law to them on Mount Sinai and so much more, but they still they dealt with unbelief repeatedly, disbelieving the God of their deliverance and running to any number of false gods around them. They, they were tired, they were scared, they were discouraged. I mean, does that sound familiar? This, this sounds like our life, just to some extent. So we should be able to identify with what's going on, whether we are part of ancient Near East culture or West culture, we are part of humanity. This is the condition of man. This is one of our difficulties. We experience this. We need to hear what God has to say through this book of Genesis. The message of Genesis was intended by God to encourage his people to know him and to trust him and his promises and to follow him by faith amid the difficult days they were facing. And of course, the same message is true for you and I today. Well, for this message. Again, I want to walk through Genesis in three main parts and then come to three specific applications at the end. My hope for this message really outside of just um, that the Holy Spirit would move in our hearts to surrender and to believe, to repent and believe the gospel and to grow in faith. Um, I, I would desire that you be intrigued enough by this amazing book that you would go home and read it. Genesis. And read it, and read it, and sit in it, and ask God for grace to understand and to grow and to, and to look to him, that, that you would love the story of the whole Bible, not just Genesis, but the whole Bible more as you come to realize that Genesis launches the trajectory of the Bible through the entire Old Testament, the death, resurrection, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and all the way along to the end, Revelation 22. And then my hope would also be that the theme song of Genesis would be stuck in each of our heads. You know when a song gets stuck in your head? You just can't, you're just like, ah, I don't, I don't want to sing that again, I'm sorry. Not this one. Let this one land. May it land on our hearts, and may it be the song of our heart. So consider the first part, and it's Genesis 1 through 3. So as you open your Bibles, um, you can just just kind of keep it open. We'll be, we'll be hitting on some verses along the way, and we're going to, we're going to try to bolt through this um, as fast as possible because we're going to be taking it slower over the next number of months. Genesis 1 through 3. The, the, the title of this section, I, I just said, Sin Brought the Curse into God's Good and Blessed Kingdom. Those are, those are purposeful words. Sin brought the curse into God's good and blessed kingdom kingdom. The book of Genesis opens with describing creation with a pattern that happens on the days of creation. The one true God. Now don't, don't miss these things. Again, by looking at the trees that you are used to looking at maybe, look, look, look back a little bit and say, the one true God speaks everything into existence. That's amazing. Light, darkness, earth, sea, stars, moons, plants, sea creatures, animals. And, and, then he, and then it says it was so. So he spoke and it happened. He spoke. His word is powerful. His, so you see the connection with promises now. His, he speaks 
and it happens. It's primarily meant, again, to teach that specific truth. And then God evaluates his work by saying it was good. The first five days of creation stick close to this pattern, but day six builds upon it. And after declaring God's creation of the animals good in chapter 1, verse 25, verse 26 says, uh, follow, and following describes the creation of mankind. And, and here in those verses, 26 and following, we see that humanity is different from the rest of creation. They have more value and, and dignity. I mean, they have so much more value and dignity and capacity and responsibility on this earth. We spoke of some of this together a few weeks ago. God, God gave man dominion over creation. God gave uh, man the command to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. Humanity, not just, man, not just men, humanity, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers who would reflect the glory of their creator. That's what's at stake. Not just work. The glory of the creator. The greatness of the name. That's what's at stake here. In Genesis, and that they would enjoy an intimate relationship with him, not like the gods of the Assyrians or the other people that are on the, the Canaanites, not like them who are scared of the God, but actually to, to live for the glory of his name and to enjoy relationship with him and spread the fame of his name wherever they went. After day six, God's evaluation of his creation is not simply good. Look at verse 31. It is very good. It's just, it's, it's so good. Humankind made in God's image was the height of his creation, and everything culminated on the seventh day when God rested. We'll consider on another day the establishment of the foundational truth that true rest and peace that all of humanity is looking for is not found in anything but God alone. The hung, I mean, shalom, right? Shalom, you're familiar with the word shalom, rest and peace that's indescribable, indescribable. And it's only found in one place, the God of Genesis, Yahweh. And chapter 2 zooms in on the creation of man to tell Israel and us that it's the Lord God who made man from the dust. It wasn't anything else wasn't some sort of biological whatever happening. It was God who made man from the dust. He was the Lord God who gave him the good gift of work in the garden. It was the Lord God who gave him a woman to be his wife and helper. It was also the Lord God who gave one command to not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do you see the connection? It was the Lord God. 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 God is the one. God is the one who is doing all the action here in this. God is the one driving the story. So... We kind of pull out a pull out our favorite arguing point, and we argue this thing when we're just like looking at the looking at the tree, and, and we back up and we say, "My goodness, God, God is active in all of the God is the one whom I must yield my life to. He is the Creator God. He is my Lord. He is my Master." Well, unfortunately, we know that paradise of perfect rest amid work and relationships just doesn't last. We long for it. We long for it so badly. Now, so did they. Afterwards. In Genesis 3, the man and woman listen to the voice of the serpent and eat the forbidden fruit and in so doing rebel against their creator, God. Adam and Eve's sin is flagrant rebellion against this creator, God. This, this God who made them and who, for whom they exist. Adam and Eve's sin is, is just brought the curse into the world. Something that affects each of us 
to this day. And since God is just and since God is holy, he must punish those who sin against him, who disobey him, who don't believe him, who don't live for his glory, don't spread his name, the glory of his name. And so he punishes them in verses 14 through 19 of chapter 3. Because of sin, so many of the beautiful things God has done in creation were reversed. Uh, instead of blessing, in Genesis 1, 22, 28, chapter 2, verse 3, the earth was cursed. Genesis 3, verse 17. Mankind's task to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1, 28, would still be possible, but bearing children would be done in pain, Genesis 3, 16. Man was to work the earth, Genesis 1, 26 and 2, 5. Now his work would be painful toil with thorns and thistles and sweat, Genesis 3, 17 and 18. And most devastatingly, God created man from the dust, Genesis 2, verse 7, and sin's sentence is a return to death in the dust. Genesis 3.19. Sin appears to be unraveling God's good purposes for the world. And it brings terrible pain, and it brings broken relationships, and it brings ultimate destruction. Mankind being made to reflect God to the nations now has been marred foundationally, once beautiful portraits that pointed to the glory of the Creator, now the image has been vandalized. As we considered just a few weeks ago, all humanity is still made in the image of God. But we are deeply flawed image bearers. There's, there's so much beauty in humanity, so much wonderful reality, so many wonderful realities in all humanity. You know, you look at, you watch movies, you watch uh, uh, things about... Um, Individual, individuals throughout the, throughout the world, and you see different things happening in different peoples, and it's just amazing whether they believe in God or not. It's just a, re a reality of amazing, but they have marred the glory of God because they are deeply flawed image bearers. They, they're, they're nowhere near perfect image bearers, and, including us. And because of our sin, God sent Adam and Eve, because of their sin, specifically God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, away from his presence, and away from the rest in him that they had once enjoyed so intimately. Something else got their, got their hearts, got their love. And yet, we see a glimmer of hope. All throughout Genesis will come face to face with the tender mercy of God, even through judgment. So in Genesis 3, verse 15, part of God's condemnation of the serpent includes the promise of one who will deliver. So as soon as there's a need, God is God is, God is on it. God's already got this plan in, in, in place. He says this in verse 15 of chapter 3. To Adam he said, because you've listened... Oh, sorry, let me back up. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The promise of an offspring to crush the enemy's head, Satan's head, drives forward the story of this whole book. It, it drives it forward through the whole Bible, and it's something we need to continually be cognizant of as we, as we look at Genesis. So we kind of get lost in the, the trees, but the forest is, is like this reality of God developing this story of redemption. And right here, in just Genesis 3, there's hope for lost mankind. So we go to chapters 4 through 11, the second point. Even in judgment, God is at work to accomplish his redemptive purposes. 
We learn in chapters 4 through 11 that sin is a power that seeks to dominate us, not just, not just kind of inflict us a little bit. It dominates us as humans. And in the end, it will, it will bring destruction. It destroys us. And sadly, that explains why our world is often a difficult place to live in. And, and why, not, not just because of them, but because of us. You see, it's all, it's all of us. We bring all of our junk to the table as well. At the beginning of chapter 4, Adam and Eve rejoice in the first uh, son, in her first son. The first son was Cain, right? And so maybe Cain, maybe Cain is this, is, this, is this offspring that is ready to crush Satan's head. Well, what they find is he ends up being the first murderer. Their corruption, their sin had spread to him all their descendants. Chapter 5 continues with the genealogy of Adam and his descendants. Could the promised seed come from them? Well, certainly it will, but will it come soon? Well, the first 18 verses in chapter 5 disappoint us as each of those people end up dead. And the curse continues to spread as as man multiplied on the earth, sin multiplied as well, forcing the conclusion of chapter 6, verse 5, that says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Now, look, that's those are that seems like saying it always, it never. It's, that that's that this is this is the voice of God speaking here. In a way, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Not hyperbole, the reality. And so this so grieved the heart of God that he decided to judge the earth and wipe out all people with a worldwide flood. And we're familiar with that story to whatever extent we are. All people except for a righteous man named Noah and his family were saved. And we know this story. Noah built an ark. The rains came, the floods came down, the, the, or the, the rains came down, the floods came up, right? God wiped out everyone. He wiped out everything except for Noah and his family and two of every kind of animal. Noah's family comes out of the ark and God tells Noah some familiar words that we've already heard with Adam. He says, God blessed Noah and his sons, Genesis 9 verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, here's Here's the, here's the account again. Here's the call. And at this point in the story, it sure looks like Noah is the second Adam. He's, he's the one to, for, for this, this thing to get going, this God's plan to get going. A kind of mulligan redo for humanity to fulfill the command God gave to Adam in Genesis 1. And it may seem for one that isn't familiar with the rest of the story that Noah, again, may very well be the serpent crusher, the promised one of Genesis 3.15. Consider Going back for a moment to Genesis 5.29, where you got Lamech, who his dad, Noah's dad, he said, he called his name Noah, which means rest, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Looking for a savior, looking for this serpent crusher, someone to save them, someone to get them out of what they're uh, dealing with. And it sure seemed that Noah was thought to be the deliverer, the bringer of the rest and peace that humanity longed for and was in desperate need of, but sadly Noah was not him. Second half of chapter 9 tells us that sin is also rampant in Noah and his family, and that just like Adam and Eve hid on account of their nakedness and shame before God in the garden, so Noah was found in nakedness and shame. And nakedness and shame in ancient Near East stuff is, is a huge deal, but the reality is sin abounds. Sin has consequences. Nakedness 
and shame. The reality, even among those who are the most seemingly good among us, sin is wreaking havoc. So one of the, one of the arguments in culture today against sin is the general goodness of people. Now, people aren't that bad. You, you, you people in church say that sin is pervasive and whatever. Well, we say that because God's word says it. It's not, it's not saying that people aren't generally nice. But sin is pervasive, even in niceness. Rest is found elsewhere. Trust in something is, is, is idolatry. Not speaking um, for the name of God among the nations, locally and globally. Not cool. Not living in some perfect manner. Not cool. Not okay. Everyone is not the worst people they could ever be. Thank the Lord that that's true. There is common grace. But man, when it compares to holy God, no one is righteous. No one. And there is an argument to be made that um, people tend towards living for themselves entirely. And I'm not just talking about people in the world. I'm talking about people in the church also. Proclaim the name, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's just that much more worse. But those who have received the Spirit of God, how can it be that we live for other gods? How can it be that this is the reality, possibly, in our own heart? How could we use our hands for that which is wicked when it's made for righteousness? The world is, is a does not have a, a savior. Well, next in the story, we come to see that Noah's descendants that have increased throughout a number of years, they try to fight God's purposes to fill the earth. Not simply to fill the earth with people, but to fill the earth with people who reflect and declare the glory of the name of Yahweh among all peoples. To make much of him through the nations. But what do they want to do? Look at chapter 11, verse 4. Chapter 11, verse 4 says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They, they tried to fight against God's purposes from creation of filling the earth, and rather than spreading the fame of his name, they wanted to make a name for themselves. So in judgment, God confused their languages and dispersed them across the whole earth. Now over the next number of weeks, we'll walk through these chapters more slowly, but for now we need to move on. At, at this point, we've made it to a pivotal part of the Genesis story. From chapters 12 through 50, the people of Israel, who again are fearful and uncertain about God, though they don't have any reason to be uncertain about God, just like us, they're uncertain about God, just like us, in the middle of difficulty. On the edge of the promised land, God's continuing in his intention to remind them of such significantly foundational truths about himself and his promises. Namely, this is the, the kind of the header over this section, chapters 12 through 50, sin is not the final word because God has an unstoppable plan to restore blessing and good to his people. Sin, sin's not the final word. It seems as though it's the final word. It seems it's so pervasive. seems everybody's dealing with it. But it's not the final word because God has an unstoppable plan to restore blessing and good to his people. 
At the end of chapter 11, we know that the post-flood and post-Babel world was growing in population, still very sinful, cut off from God's blessing. God planned to restore blessing on earth, and he chose to do it through one man, through a man of his own choosing, Abram, um, later called Abraham. Here's his story, in a, or the story in a nutshell is where we're going to go through, and it's, it's, we'll spend a, few, a number of weeks on his story in the future. He says this in verses 1 through 3 of Genesis uh, chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, God made a covenant with Abraham here, and he expands it a bit in Genesis 15, and he expands it a bit in 17, and there are four main components of this covenant that God made with Abraham. There are his descendants, a great nation, Countless as the sea on the or the sand on the seashore, stars in the sky. Kings are going to be coming from his line. Uh, chapter seventeen, verse six, and then there's the promise of land. This this promised land where they would experience nearness with God, uh, uh, peace and and rest. And then there was the the blessing. Not only would Abraham and his family be blessed, but there would be a channel. They would be a channel through which blessing came, which God would bless every nation on earth. And then there's a promise of protection. For his people. The problem we come to um, find out is that there's this promised son, but Abraham and Sarah are in their 70s, and they have no children. And, you know, we might just kind of have come to a place where we're just kind of like, well, yeah, but it's Abraham and Sarah. It, it's, it, it's Abraham and Sarah. They're 70. They're in their 70s. They had children the same way back then as they do today. So it's like, you just don't see it happening, right? It's things are different in a woman's body. Uh, thing, things are just different. And so it's like the reality is, wh- how is this going to happen? How is God going to be true to his promise through Abraham and Sarah in their 70s? But an amazing, mir- miraculous thing did happen amid almost every reason to not believe such promises. Genesis 15, verse 6. Uh, this, is, this is amazing to me. Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. He, could you imagine the amount of questions that might arise and yet he surrendered, he believed. How, what is it the people of Israel need to hear? They need to hear that God is great and he's worth surrendering to in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of questions. God called Abraham to leave his family, his homeland, his culture, and to believe him for a promise of a son in his 70s, a promise then that he had to wait 25 years for. Have you ever had to wait on God for years? I know some of you have. It's not easy. Hours or days or weeks or months, they're they're not easy either. And it was not easy for Abraham. So put yourself in Abraham's position and consider the difficulty of keeping believing the Lord when the promise doesn't seem to be happening. He and Sarah tried to make God's plan happen in a number of different ways. Abraham's faith was certainly imperfect. And in every instance of Abraham's actions that stem from his imperfect faith, God intervenes. He intervenes routinely to preserve that which he has promised. 
God is a covenant-keeping God. He, he is going to see this happen. God would not let his redemptive promises be ruined, and he did keep his promise in the birth of a descendant. Finally, a man named Isaac, um, and he was born 25 years later, so in their 90s, right? We don't have to imagine the joy of Abraham and Sarah, and when the day arrived, both of them in their 90s holding this little baby, such visible proof that God does, in fact, keep his promises. In chapter 22 of Genesis, we come to see that Abraham even believed that God was so true to his promises that even if his son were to die, God was so true to his promises, if his son would die, he'd, rise him, he'd, he'd raise him up from the dead, because that's how, that's how much he believed in God. He trusted him fully, though imperfectly. His faith continued to grow and grow through the years and through the difficulties. And after Abraham dies, God reiterates his promise to Isaac. He says this in chapter 26, verse 24, The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And then after Isaac came Jacob, who would later be named Israel. The problem is Jacob acts like his name means. He cheats, he lies, he tricks, and yet in spite of all of Jacob's ugliness, God's purposes for Abraham's descendants will not be hindered. It'd be accomplished. God told Jacob in Genesis 28, verses 13 through 14, he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And the story continues. We see in chapter 31 that after his father-in-law tricks him and takes advantage of him for years, he finally has to flee Laban at risk of his life. And yet God intervenes and tells Laban because Laban wanted to hurt him. He says, Laban, don't, you're not going to lay a hand on him. Why? Not just, because, not just because he's a special agent, it's because God is going to make it happen. God's plan will not be foiled by anybody, anytime, anywhere. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. What is it that Israel needs, needs to know? What is it that you need to know today? He who began a good work in you will complete it. But do you see what's happening in all of this? A big theme that seems to be coming about here. Is it not that God is going to do what he says? The rest of Genesis focuses on, focuses on Jacob's sons, Israel's sons, his 12 sons. And uh, specifically, he centers in on Joseph. And what we come to see is that Joseph is the beloved son. He is the hated brother and he is the God-ordained Savior for God's people. So do you remember Jacob's sons for a moment? Abraham's great-grandkids, children of the promise. Two of them are going to murder an entire town out of revenge for the rape of their sister. One would sleep with his father's concubine. All of them would sell their brother into slavery because of their hatred towards him. And one would impregnate his daughter-in-law, whom he mistook for a prostitute. These are, these are wonderful, wonderful examples to follow. Not. But still, this is the family that God chose to be the conduit of blessing to all the nations. How, how can that be? 
Well, again, if you're familiar with the story, but after being sold into slavery, Joseph finds himself in Egypt as a servant in the house of a powerful man. We're told in chapter 39 that God was with Joseph, caused all that he did to succeed. See God's role? He is causing everything Joseph does to succeed because he's got a plan, and that plan won't be, fo- won't be altered. False accusation lands him in prison. Is God's plan being derailed? No. God is still with Joseph, blessing him even in prison, caused him to be a blessing to others. Years went by. Again, years, years went by. Joseph would interpret the dream of someone who knew Pharaoh. A couple of years later, Joseph finds himself standing before Pharaoh to interpret a difficult dream. Pharaoh rewards Joseph for his God-given interpretation about a famine that would be experienced in the area, including in the area where his dad and his brothers lived and, and his people and the need to prepare for it. And he promotes him to be the right-hand man in charge of it all. So the famine comes, just as the dream predicted, hit the entire known world, even reaching to Joseph's family. Joseph's family journeyed to Egypt for food because they had nothing where they were and they were going to die if they didn't do something about it. So they had to go get some food and they, and they had to go where they sold Joseph into slavery. And Joseph, using his power of his position of power and the storehouses of food was able to save the lives, not of people in Egypt, but, but also the family of promise. It was as though God was in charge of everything and, and seeing these things happening, though Joseph is just in the middle of this story, but he's believing on God, trusting in God. This, this is the family of promise, the family from which all the nations would be blessed and spread the fame of the name of God. And so in chapters 45 and, and chapter 50, we come to see through the words of Joseph, Joseph what the truth behind all this is. Joseph says this to his brothers, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, although that was like really bad. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Why? Because because he just kind of liked these people? No, because God has a plan from before the foundation of the world to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever. Nothing is going to sidetrack him. No famine, no Egypt, no Pharaoh, no troublesome prison, no nothing. Nothing. He says this in Genesis 50. This is right, right towards the end of, of the book. He says, as for you, we're familiar with this, but the, you think about the context you know, as for you, you meant evil against me. And my goodness, we're talking years, years of brutal. I mean, this was, this was not cable TV prison. This was, this, this was ancient Egypt. That prison, he was given favor in prison. So I don't know all what that meant. But ultimately, it's like this is a nasty, nasty place. He says, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. Hear hear the sovereign hand of God. God meant it for good, even though you meant evil against me, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. Listen, God works his good and saving purposes through Joseph, the beloved son of the father who was mistreated by his own, the one who lived righteously in a sinful world, suffered under the hands of sinners, from humility was exalted to a high place in Egypt in particular, and was able to nourish and save all those who would come to him. And, and that, my friends, looks a lot like Jesus in Genesis 50. It's not Jesus, 
but it certainly points to Jesus. And here's the crux of the matter. Genesis is meant from beginning to end to point us to Jesus. It's not just a book about creation. It's not just a book about the flood. It's not just a book about this, that, and the other thing. As important as all these details might be, it's just the reality is God is saying, I am the God of Abraham. I am the one to follow. I've got a plan. Follow me. Trust me. I've got the Savior. I've got it all for you. Just believe me. Trust me and walk in the goodness of that. You see the beauty of Genesis? I, when we first decided to go into Genesis, I was, I was, I was fearful up to like three weeks ago to go into Genesis because there's so strong opinions on all these specific things. And I'm like, I need to get my head above it for a moment and just look at the forest and say, God is beautiful. He is worthy of our trust and our hopes. Like, like I can't wait to go through this book now with you. Genesis is not meant to be primarily, now people mean this in different ways, okay? So I, I'm not, I'm not don't, don't link me with, with whoever you're, the person you dislike in, in online concerning a statement like this. But I'm saying it's not primarily a science textbook. It's not primarily an ancient historiography. It is primarily the Word of God that causes us to lift our heads and see Him as the glorious one. One commentator says this, um, Sidney Gradanus, he just, uh, just, I found him to be so helpful. He says, Genesis is the broad strokes of the beginnings of God's redemptive history in order to acquaint Israel with the God of their ancestors and His acts to preserve a people and to restore His kingdom on earth. I'm like, yes. Yes, that's true. Even though Genesis was written like 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to draw these parallels to point us to Jesus Christ, who is the promised deliverer of Genesis 3.15. It's not Cain. It's not Seth, although it's in those lines. It's in, it's in Seth's line. We'll see, but he is the promised deliverer. Deliver. Jesus is. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham who would bring God's blessings on the whole earth. And of course, Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of God working his saving purposes on earth in spite of great evil. Uh, the great evil tried, thought that they had him on the cross, right? But who put him on the cross? Our sins put him on the cross, but God was pleased to crush him for the redemption of his people. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Why? Not because it felt good. For the redemption of his people. In Genesis 3.15, as Genesis 3.15 states, the devil struck the heel of the promised one by nailing it to a cross, but Jesus Christ, the promised one, crushed the head of Satan by shedding his blood as an atoning sacrifice for his sin, and then he rose from the dead, victorious over the enemy, bringing salvation, cleansing from sin, restoration to the presence of God by the Spirit to all who would believe, giving rest and peace to his people in Christ. So all of our rest, all of our rest, all of our peace, truly, and relationship with God is through Christ. This is the glory of the gospel. There is one gospel by which we stand. Nothing else. This is true. And in Christ, we await the ultimate promised land, a land not stained by sin, a new, a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell with people and be their God and where there will be no more curse. curse. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more death, but only rest in God and peace in God forever and ever. And until we're there, until we're there, look, I know that I talked with my mom and dad about this, or not really my mom, but my dad about this. Heaven feels like a long way off. You know, you're going through suffering, and heaven feels a long way off. And yet we need to hope 
in that because that hope is a sure and certain hope today. Because he who has already prepared a place for us, he's with us today, strengthening us. This, this, is, this is beautiful. This is what Genesis points to. Hope not in the, the gods of the world that are fearful, fearsome, and just like cause us to feel like God's going to get us. It's, but God provided a way for us in Christ, and so all of our hope can be in him. And until we're there again, God promises to be with us, to strengthen us, to not lose heart, filling us with his spirit to, to sustain us and to empower us and to give us rest and peace and joy unspeakable and filled with glory, knowing that, knowing that amid all the t- terrible things that are going on, we are his people. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. We are the sheep of his pasture. We've been brought into his fold. He will bring us blameless into his presence with great joy. This is the trajectory of the Bible. This is the story. This is the story, the song of Genesis. Now we get to enter into together. What a glorious reality we get to do. Well, let me just give you three quick applications. One, You can trust in your sovereign creator even when all seems lost. Friends, you can trust in him. Israel needed to hear this. So do I. So do you. You can trust in your sovereign creator even when all seems lost. For Israel, it was easy to turn to the gods of the nations instead of trusting God by faith. Uh, Genesis shows us that God's good purposes are going to triumph even if they're a long time in coming. When, when we get to that final promise of the of, uh, promised land of the new earth, oh, won't it be true that we will be able to say that even when our faith is weak, God is strong. He was strong and he is faithful and he will see to it that all of his promises are kept. And so we can rest in him. Perhaps, perhaps you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus. And life stinks. Life is hard for you. Maybe, maybe life is good for you. I don't know. But looking around, there's a lot of sorrow in this world, and perhaps you're there as well. Perhaps you've, you've hurt others, or maybe you've been the one who has been hurt. Friend, know that in Jesus Christ, the only one, only Jesus Christ, there is hope for today and for eternity. He offers complete forgiveness for your sins against God and reconciliation with the one for whom you were made to enjoy him forever. All the wonderful things we've thought about together today are only available to those who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So will you trust him? Will you place your trust in him? Second application, you can find your joy in God rather than your circumstances. We, we're, we're all prone, every single one of us, to be happy when things are going good and not overly joyful when things aren't going well. We begin to question all sorts of things. And the longer the suffering happens, it's taking place, the worse it gets. But you can find your joy in God rather than your circumstances. Maybe you resonate with Joseph's, prisons, Joseph's prison experience. You feel lonely, you feel isolated, you feel abandoned, you feel orphaned by God. It's the path of least resistance to let your emotions flow from your circumstances instead of God's promises. But just like Joseph, you don't know the picture God is painting in your life. But you know the God who is painting the picture. But the fact that you don't know the picture God's painting in your life, it's difficult. Joseph spent, you know, 
quite, quite a bit of time in prison. And, and knowing, not, just not sure he's going to get out. He didn't know the story. He didn't know what was going to happen. Our eyes need to be fixed on the author and perfecter of faith and all that he's done for us, all that he's currently doing for us, and all that he will one day do for us for the glory of his name and our real joy rather than our eyes being fixed on our circumstances, which is so easy to happen, right? But especially in suffering. He is our great God, and he is the source of our greatest and deepest joy. So look to God. Friends, get to know God. Spend time in Genesis. Read this book. God, what do you want me to know from this book about you? Not just about these stories, but about you. You are the God of the story. You are the God whom I must see. And then also meditate on the redemptive work of God, primarily as you look forward to the life and death and resurrection ascension of Jesus. Third and final, you can forgive those who have wronged you. When you realize that God can use even evil for his redemptive purposes, we can let go of bitterness and we can let go of anger toward those who have hurt us. And maybe you're here and you're struggling to forgive someone who hurt you. Maybe this person literally ruined your life like Joseph's brothers seemed to do to him. And dear brother, dear sister, know that Christ offers you peace and rest and reconciliation and by the power of the Spirit whom you've been given, you can forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Ephesians 4, 32. It wasn't easy for Joseph. It's certainly not easy for us. But forgiveness is possible when we remember that in spite of great evil, the Creator God will keep His promises to us and accomplish His good purposes in the world. Listen, God is powerful to work his redemptive purposes in the world and is faithful to keep his promises. We are not those who fear the shaking of the kingdoms uh, around us. We have been placed in an unshakable kingdom. Unshakable, why? Unshakable because the God of the kingdom. The God of the kingdom is unshakable. Though the mountains quake and the oceans swell, who is our refuge and strength? God is our refuge and strength. This is the God who Israel needed to be looking to, looking to from the very beginning. How different is Yahweh than the gods of the nations? Through all the narrative of Genesis, we see all of God's good purposes for the world and for you will be fulfilled in Him. He is our God. He is our deliverer. He's our father. He's our friend. He's our protector. He's our healer. He's our savior. He's our joy. He's our rest. And He's our peace. And so much more. God's people are being beckoned by Him to trust Him, to believe Him, and to walk in Him amid all the evil around us, amid all the temptations that tempt to turn us to something else that will always end up failing us. And we know those things fail us over and over and over again. Let us not go after those things, but let us run to God. Let us know that God is for us, and He's speaking to us even right now to say, look to me, trust me, believe in me. Though the questions abound, look to me. Trust me, I have a plan, and I'm going to make it happen. Let's enter our study of Genesis together hungry to know our God more, expectant that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes and strengthen our hearts to trust Him and to find our rest in Him. Amen.